Hello, and welcome to the EuroWhat, episode number 27 for the week of October 8th, 2018. I'm Ben Smith, and I'm joined today by Mike McComb. Hey, Mike. Hello. We are a couple of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest. This week, we'll be talking about the history of instruments at the contest. How's it going, Mike? It's going well. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. It is October. Fall is here. Uh, Starbucks has the fancy fall lattes, so all is right in the world. Nice. Well, except for like everything else in the world, but we're going to ignore that because this is a Eurovision <laughs> podcast and not a news podcast. That was a good call on our part. We'll, we'll see how much we can keep the two separated. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there will be some crossover in the coming year, but I don't think we have any of that now. Like, I did not think that we were going to have a whole bunch of news to cover in the last couple of weeks, but as it turns out, I'm wrong. Planning is moving at a pretty swift pace, so that is helping things out. Uh, we've got 39 countries so far that have indicated that they're going to be participating next year. Uh, that number has a small asterisk next to it uh, because Ukraine's public broadcaster um, has shut down. Oops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they've been having some financial problems the last couple of years. I'm sure hosting Eurovision in 2017 did not help matters yeah, all that much. Yeah. But yeah, they've just kind of hit like a funding blockage uh, from the government and like they're still planning on participating, but the actual details of how that's going to work are uh, still TBD. So hopefully they'll be there. Like Ukraine's hopefully, always fun, yeah, ho- but yeah, they, yeah, they 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 bring a party. Yeah, yeah. It's I don't know. These things have a way of working themselves out. I mean, Israel was in the same situation a couple of years ago, and look where they are now. And, and so. here we are now. Yeah. So. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Uh, and then, so who? So 39 seems a little bit lower than last year. Who else are we waiting on for confirmation? Uh, right now we're waiting on Russia, San Marino, Armenia, and Moldova. Uh, and these four are countries that are typically the last ones to send in their RSVP. Right. And like of those four, like the only one where I would not be surprised if they took the year off would be San Marino, just because mm-hmm. they have issues with the scoring system. And also... They do not do well, and right. I'm, I'm always rooting for them, but also if they want to take a year off to just kind of let, let things bake and think about a longer-term strategy for what they want to get out of the competition, I'd be fine with that. Yeah, it was interesting last year just because they tried the selection competition, 1 in 360, to yep, make, where make you their buy selection. Shares in your favorite artists in case that they won or became famous. Yeah, I, I don't think that worked I don't, at I don't all. Think <laughs> I don't think we're getting a return on our investment. Yeah, that in, that, that uh, one was kind of a disaster. But they had ro- they had little cute robots, though. Sure, uh, <laughs> but yeah, the uh, if if they need to take some time to just kind of figure stuff out, that might not be the worst thing. Like Bulgaria took a couple years off and. And they're back and and in it to win it. I would I would also not be surprised if Moldova and Russia are fighting over uh, the creative team that has worked for both of them and to 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 very very good results. We should have kind of a finalish list sometime this week, next couple of weeks, uh, and it's and the deadline in October is just say that you're going to be part of the competition, and then they have until December to actually like put down their deposit mm-hmm. and really confirm or or withdraw. In the competition without any sort of penalty without financial penalty if ukraine's still in the mix and uh these last four countries confirm it'll end up being 43 countries total it'll be the exact same lineup as uh this year's competition so yeah it should be a pretty good show and if it is a slightly smaller competition 
that'd be unfortunate, but I mean, it's still going to be a pretty good lineup regardless. Ukraine may want to look into sponsorship because, uh, as it turns out, the the EBU is partnering with MyHeritage. Uh, sort of like how I think Ancestry is now partnering with Spotify to convince your Nana to check out Spotify. Uh, MyHeritage is going to work closely with the EBU to create content throughout the year that will focus on the rich heritage of the Eurovision Song Contest, revealing the connections between winners, participants, and fans of the show, and probably forcing some of those contestants to take Ancestry tests. It just seems so... Creepy is not the right word, but like. Well, and also I, I'm just like, what are like, what are we expecting to learn from this? Oh wow, the the Danish the Danish entry is has like a rich Danish heritage. Here we go. Yeah, or just, like, just 100. percent Wow, what are, what are the chances? Yeah, or everybody's a 12th cousin. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, that's how math yeah, works. Welcome, so. <laughs> welcome, welcome to Reykjavik. We have an app for that. Yeah. Uh but yeah, but. The fact that they're planning on doing stuff throughout the year should be interesting. I, I look forward to seeing what content throughout the year looks like, or if it's just like, we made a video in the spring and a video in the fall, yeah. and we're done. Yeah, and if, and if it's like that, I think I would be okay with that. Because, I mean, there they have been other presenting sponsors who are like the uh, sponsor for the lights and uh, Schwarzkopf, uh, which is, I think it's a beauty brand uh, yes. in Europe. Yeah, like their name is there every year, but you don't actually see like the green room presented by Schwarzkopf and, uh, where, where they force like the various female performers to like sit down and talk about hair products. Right. Yeah. So, although it does kind of remind me of, I think it was during the second semifinal where they were doing the demo of the Eurovision board game and yeah. 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 Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, I'm trying to remember. There was also, I think there was like something at the Emmys red carpet this year where it was a very much a brand sponsor thing, and nobody seemed to want to do it. Mm. Which it's like, oh man, you should, you should probably send out a press release about that a little bit before the show. Oh, spawn. So, so good on you, my heritage. You sent out a press release before the show. Yes. Yeah. So you are well ahead of the game. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> it's just gross. I, 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 I just think it's just kind of icky. Well, uh, also like, like with the whole GDPR thing. Yeah. And, and with with a lot of privacy concerns in Europe, how is that going to fly? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that is an advantage of being in Israel. Is look, maybe it's not as applicable there yeah this will be a fun one to track (laughs) yeah more remains to be seen about how much how far the sponsorship goes or more likely does not go Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. also things that are not going uh or maybe going at some point in the very distant future asia eurovision song contest is not going to be a thing at least according to uh, australia's broadcaster uh who's been uh, one of the primary organizers or attempted organizers of the competition. They've determined that it's just become geopolitically difficult to try to stage this competition. Uh, I believe that was the phrase that was used in the interview. So the contest was announced as a possible thing. I believe it was about this time last year with a target date of today. I think there were like 10 or 12 countries that indicated interest in participating, but then nothing really came of it. And, okay, so it's, it's like yeah. when you're like, hey, friends, we should go apple picking. And everyone's like, yeah, we totally should. And mm-hmm. then when you're like, okay, can we go apple picking this weekend or like next weekend? They're like, oh, man, I'm busy. Yeah, it's just Facebook maybes all over the place. So. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Who knew it was difficult to organize a big geopolitical music contest? Who could have seen that coming? Yeah, I have a feeling part of it is a lot of the big players did not seem to 
indicate interest. Like, I don't think India was on the list. I think there were parts of China that were interested, but not an overwhelming amount of Chinese areas that were interested. So it just wasn't going to be a big enough thing. And yeah, yeah, but it's probably something that's still on the back burner. But it's not out of the question. It's just a not now sort of a situation. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure what is going to push it into a more definite situation but yeah yeah somebody somebody needs to be the social chair and says this is happening next march Mm -hmm. please prepare an entry or don't come march would be the worst time to do the competition by march and by march i mean september we should do this in september i'm the social chair there we go talking about preliminary info for the eurovision contest since asia vision does not seem to be on the horizon uh eurovision definitely is uh we have preliminary stage info which is exciting somebody who's leading up the search for designer really talked in poor terms about the <laughs> about this year's stage they asked the the person who's leading the search for this year's uh stage designer what he thought of this year's stage is like the stage in lisbon will not be remembered for the better it was inspired by four points of portuguese culture and history it was not particularly beautiful and certainly not a breakthrough will be remembered mainly because there were no basic screens and because of the low budget allocated for the competition. I don't think that's fair. (laughs) That that, that is a very harsh assessment. I thought there were elements of the stage, like the bridges. I thought that they were used rather effectively. The bridges were super cool. Yeah, the pyrotechnics were on point. Yeah, the pyrotechnics were great. I will admit that I agree with him that I'm not sure, or at least I didn't really get the whole navigation, the sea, ships, or maps from the stage but that's fine like i thought they did an okay job because they they set out to say we're not going to do screens this year we're going to do something else and they did something else yeah the look of the stage that feels more like an in-studio type decision and i didn't really get the essence of ships either but that wasn't really the point like i'm i'm much more interested in seeing like how the performers use the space that they are allotted and you could make it a black box theater type situation if you wanted to and well well, yeah like it's like when you go to a restaurant and they're like oh yeah our our decor is inspired by danish modernism and you're like "Uh uh-huh how's the food right exactly like i i am i'm here to i'm here to analyze the the songs just give just give them a good a nice white plate that they can present things on and the rest is just gravy we did get some information about like what they're looking for in uh the upcoming competition stage and like the keywords are tolerance, progress, unity, iconic, unique, innovative, groundbreaking. And it's like, okay. Okay. (laughs) They've purchased the thesaurus. That's a great first step. Like I'm wondering if iconic, if they mean it in the way that that word really means or the way that like people use the word iconic nowadays, where it's Mm -hmm. just like, oh, anything that is like Insta famous is iconic. I don't know. Meme worthy. I would just find it hilarious uh, if if they meant the other iconic. Just like, yeah, we were inspired by classic iconography uh, and... Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's just like, oh wow, the Eastern Orthodoxy. Interesting. Let's let's yeah. let's see where this goes. So. <laughs> but yeah, just just like hitting all the words on the bingo card. Uh, and then I like that they they have wisely said, okay, so our green room can't look like it's in another building, despite the fact that it's in another building. And that is going to be the biggest challenge, I think, with whatever staging they come up with. Because I mean, I know that the effect that they're trying to go for is to not make it seem like oh there's one audience that is totally engaged with the live performance happening in front of them and a separate audience that is watching everything on a monitor and trying to 
have that same level of engagement. It's kind of like when you're watching New Year's Eve live and uh, they say, oh, some elements are pre-recorded. And it's like, oh, so these people are celebrating New Year's Eve on like a Tuesday in October. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just pretend it's almost midnight, everybody. And they need to find a way to have it not cut from like a room full of very engaged people who are watching a live thing to a room full of people who really wish they had read the website more carefully when mm-hmm. they were purchasing their ticket. Yeah, it's just like, oh wow, it's just like watching <laughs> watching it at home. I'm so glad that I spent like so a couple hundred euro for this experience. Tickets. Yeah. It's great that they've given themselves a fun challenge like that. We'll just see how it ends up getting executed. If I were designing this, which this is the main reason I will not be designing the stage for the the, the 2019 year of just song contest, I'd really lean into the fact that those are different rooms. Yeah, I mean, that could be, ooh, yeah. I mean, particularly because, like, the other room is the green room, and you're going to have all of the performers there. Like, they could, mm-hmm. they could have some fun with it. Also having fun is Cher, um, who I'm kind of surprised that we haven't talked about her on the podcast yet, even though, like, she has no direct Eurovision connection. Just Cher is having a great time just seems to be a, a constant, just having seen her on Twitter. Yes, yes. Um, but, yeah, her, her latest project has been uh, a um album of abba covers it uh, was released on spotify like a week or so ago and it's sort of like when you go to karaoke and it's just like oh this song in the style of this artist it's just pretty much like waterloo in the style of abba and shares just doing the karaoke of it and like that sounds like it's like a read or like me throwing yeah, shade or something like but very borderline mean take on that yeah, but it's not like it's just <laughs> like oh no this is exactly what she should be doing it's exactly what i want to be listening to right now is like the world crumbles around us and yeah it's a lot of fun like she's not like reinventing the songs or anything like that but yeah they're just straightforward covers and she's having fun it's a great listen i highly recommend it and yeah waterloo is one of the songs on there and uh check it out if you haven't had a chance yet this week in boycotts. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's boycotting this week? It's Ireland still. Building on our last episode where uh, the Irish songwriters were planning to boycott if if Ireland participated. Ireland was like, yeah, we didn't use you guys anyways a few years ago, so we'll be fine. But this week, it seems like they are at least making progress. Uh, the Irish broadcaster, RTE, met with the organizers of the boycott. Sounds like they are kind of reaching some sort of accord and planning an internal selection. So things are working themselves out, uh, it seems. I I haven't read anything yet of what sort of agreements have been reached or what each side is looking for here. But one item that did come out was that anybody who works for RTE that does not want to travel to uh, Israel for Eurovision this coming year, they're not going to suffer any sort of penalty for that. So Okay. I have a feeling this is not going to be the only instance of this that we're going to be hearing, like not just from Ireland, but possibly other countries. But mm-hmm. I, I think this one's probably going to set the tone for this topic, just kind of however this ends up getting resolved. One thing that came up in our last episode's discussion that felt like a good deep dive for this week was talking about the history of instrumentation at the contest. We have sort of alluded to the various ways Eurovision has changed over the years, and I think one that's interesting to watch, especially if you're like me and you go back to watch YouTube clips of some of like the winners just to see how that's changed over the years, the whole style and staging of things has changed a lot, and a lot of that is the instrumentation. When the contest started out, there was an orchestra, because that's just what you did for live music, so there was an orchestra required through 1973. Volare came to mind as like one of the first Eurovision songs that went like big. Mm-hmm. Volare. 
Mosa Dades' Eras 2, which I mostly remember from uh, every single Spanish class I took in high school. There was at least one day where we just listened to Eras 2. Really? Yeah, like it may have just been like our Spanish classes version of watching a movie. Huh. But uh, but yeah, no, like I remember listening to Eras 2 multiple times because I took multiple Spanish courses. Yeah, uh, I, I, then, I did not take Spanish, so I had no idea that that was a thing. That, that's nope, interesting. Nope, yeah, no, like huh. that. Uh, I only recently learned that it was a Eurovision thing, so it huh. was... Yeah, is is that Mosadatus' Eris 2, which is from about 1973 when the orchestra requirement was initially dropped. Mm-hmm. Another one that popped to mind as really feeling like you can feel sort of a big orchestra presence is Lulu's Boom Bang a Bang, which is a very, very silly song. Oh, Lulu. <laughs> After 1973, backing tracks started to be allowed. So a lot of ABBA's performance of Waterloo is a backing track. But the orchestra still remains and can add stuff on. But again, like those backing tracks sort of popping up means that you're starting to get things that are a little bit synthier. And you, you start to see a move away from very traditional band or very sort of traditional orchestra steps. So like in the 70s, you still have winners like Teachin's Ding Ding a Dong. It's still guitar-driven, but it still feels very orchestral. It still has that very kind of, I don't want to say classical backing, but it still feels like very traditional backing. That's mm-hmm. a better one. But as you start to get into the late 70s, as you start to have things like uh, Making Your Mind Up by Bucks Fizz in the 80s, and as you get into, particularly as you get into like the mid and the late 80s, uh, you start to get more of a synth and backing track presence. So you have... Uh, Harry's Digaloo Digalay, which I remember from every single time during Melody Festival and that they do a medley. That one pops up just because it's a Swedish win. Right. The other big one, which which is another one that we haven't discussed on the show, despite it being like one of the bigger winners, and I think we kind of avoid it because of that, is uh, Celine Dion's Ne Partez Pas Samois mm-hmm. in 1988. The recorded version of that track is super, super synthy. Uh, the live performance has more of the orchestral backing, but it, you still start to see the sort of balance between the two of them. Right. Yeah. And uh, going back to the Bucks Fizz example, that one like is more known for like the choreography and yeah, like, the it, ripping of the skirts, which is something that you wouldn't be able to do if there were an orchestra on stage. Well, I mean, I guess you could do it, but it would just look bizarre to have that happen well yeah and i i feel like now they show you a postcard of people holding hands on the beach mm-hmm. uh they would like show uh the conductor coming down to the orchestra and queuing things up but the orchestra would be like off to the side and like over here is bucks fizz doing their whole little choreography thing and like that bucks fizz one is interesting because 
a lot of some of these performances, like up until like the seven, like seventy three, and even like immediately after, are still very static. Are still we're here, we're standing, and we're performing our song. And there might be a little bit of personality in the singer, like with Lulu. Like I think Lulu's personality is like what sold that song and helped get them that win. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these are still very much very static performances, where it's just that person performing their song because it's it's a song contest. So somewhere in the '90s, as they were trying to modernize the competition and shake things up, is we kind of got rid of the orchestra being a requirement. Uh, backing tracks are starting to become a bigger thing, but to kind of balance out the musicianship, there's a ruling that okay. You can have a backing track, but you should at least have some representation of what's being played on the backing track on stage, which makes for some interesting performances Yep, <laughs> or some interesting staging decisions. Like the one that I keep coming back to because it amuses me so much from 1996, uh, Gina G's Ooh Ah Just a Little Bit for the UK, which did not win. I think it came like fifth or seventh or somewhere in the top 10, but like it's very much a Eurodance song. So to represent these synths, you have like keyboards plugged into just like those just gigantic beige 90s computers. And it's it's Gina G and two backing dancers. And then these two men just manning these keyboards at very large computers. And it's great. Yeah, I mean, it, it is definitely I think the song still holds up pretty well. I mean, at, as a Eurovision song anyway. But yeah, uh, yeah visually, it is of a time. And <laughs> <laughs> it seems so so long ago but yes yeah like just the giant computer monitors and it was like wow those used to be standard man <laughs> the the in-camera effects mm-hmm. of that performance are great too because you've got, got kind of like the desaturation of everything except for one color right yeah and uh, just the choreography that's happening it's just mm. it, yeah, it's it, just it like, is oh right the mid-90s yeah, it, it, it is very concentrated 1996. <laughs> right, yes. But yeah, like in that kind of late 90s period, again, the orchestra is optional. Uh, we have winners like uh, Donna International's Devo, which definitely plays on sort of a very synthesized orchestral sound. Mm-hmm. Up until 1999, again, it's optional. In 1999, again, trying to update things, the orchestra is completely eliminated. No live music, uh, backing tracks for everybody. Not even some sort of weird rule that you have to illustrate what's being played on stage. The 1999 winner, uh, Charlotte Nilsson's Take Me to Your Heaven, uh, just talking about uh, the late 90s and the styling and what that felt like. I watched that video preparing for this episode, and oh my gosh, it yeah. is just pure concentrated, oh no. Take me to your Fashion is cyclical, and I really hope we skip over that one. <laughs> All of the 90s things are happening in that performance, and yet it feels weirdly old-fashioned as far as the Eurovision performance, because it's still that same kind of static performance. Mm-hmm. Main singer up front, not really doing a whole bunch. Backing singers standing in a cluster off to the side of the stage. Even though you will occasionally see instruments on stage now, like, they're not mic'd instruments. You can you can play an instrument, like, that's not what the rule is. It's just, like, those instruments are not providing the music that people are actually performing to. I think that I feel like with rare 
cases i guess with rare exceptions like they're mostly just used as like a prop or particularly when it's when it's when an entry feels kind of like folkier or more in tune with whatever the the national music traditions are in that nation mm-hmm. i feel like that's when you see an instrument on stage like i remember when armenia did uh apricot stone and oh, they had yes. like some sort of some sort of armenian brass instrument on stage because it was almost shofar like in in terms of tone just thinking of other times when i've seen modern instrumentation on stage like polapunk uh polapunk was not actually mic'd those instruments were not mic'd it was a backing track. uh but yeah and there there have been like a few interesting exceptions to the rule so i mean we have there are, i i kind of shocked it took until 2006 to have an acapella entry yeah that seems really late i want to dig into that and see if there's like something where that was like surprise uh there was like a like someone played a guitar at the beginning and then never again uh but like latvia in 2006 and then belgium in 2011 is the one that i'm most aware of with luf bay's with love we'll break it down now doing an acapella performance in an arena that's sort of an additional level of difficulty to put on top of yourself yeah and also it may have just been what was trendy at the time because like 2011 that was around the time of the sing-off and i'm not sure if that had international editions but like acapella was kind of a thing was having a moment yeah yeah um and not sure if that was also happening in 2006 for some reason i'm thinking that it may have been maybe that was when like college acapella was starting to take off and then in 2011 that was when you have your pitch perfect series when you have all those things right i think we are starting to see kind of another shift in instrumentation and thinking about how to restrict that at the contest because in in 2017 you have Norway's entry. Where you have somebody uh, using vocal sampling and being allowed to use vocal sampling because up until then, other entries have been, have had to figure out a way to recreate that live on the stage. But I think Joust, uh, I rightly pointed out that that was the sort of integral to how the song worked, and they were allowed to do that. And I thought that that worked out well, and that seemed to have opened up the door for other instances of that. I don't recall there being any specific instances this year, but I mean, it's something that I think the EBU is going to have to tackle at some point, just because, like, you think of Justin Bieber's Where Are You Now, where that same sort of technique, where it's like taking the voice, but then just modulating it into something that is so not a human voice at that point right like it's just like what yeah, what do you do this, this very yeah. pitch shifted very modulated sample where it does become an instrument in its own right and like having a sampler with that stuff on top of it and sort of deploying that mid-song i i think that counts as an instrument now well especially with netta winning and, and her whole base of performance being in doing vocal sampling often live Right. It, it's just getting into the nuances of, well, what counts as recording and what counts as live and like recording versus backing track. Like it, it's it's getting into the hair splitting that it's like, oh, you can you can ignore it for so long, but I'm not sure how much longer it can be ignored. Right. And like, I would love to see somebody like build up a song bit by bit with a loop pedal. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. that would be like if they could do that in three minutes and have it be super captivating and super interesting, I would be totally down. I would love to see that. Yeah, I mean, and I th- I think it presents 
the the same sort of level of difficulty that the acapella performances had where it's just like oh yeah like if you if you mess up the timing of your loop like that's going to yeah, like that, be that's a catastrophe gonna, <laughs> which yeah, you're I mean, either perhaps, have to work with that or just completely just stop and start again yeah which may be like one of the reasons why they may not want to address it and like maybe for the safety of the artist and the show just being like oh yeah like you you will not have the opportunity to restart if an error is made and it is a self-caused error like mm-hmm. it, it's not like somebody like jumping the stage and interfering with the performance it's like oh no i just missed my cue and it just went all downhill from there oh yeah no so. i've i've seen singer songwriters who use a loop pedal uh completely screw up like right as they're starting the song be like yeah we're gonna start that over yeah and that just would not fly. That, yeah, I'm pretty sure the EBU would like that's not happen. Thank you very much. Yeah, it makes sense that you wouldn't have an instrumental in like the early days of the competition because it's about to, it's supposed to be about songwriting, and if you just have one orchestra, it doesn't seem fair to have them perform some other nation's song and have that counts. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, no instrumental entries are allowed. I get that because again, it's supposed to be about songwriting and about sort of melody and it's not to say that an instrumental doesn't have that it's just that there's sort of a texture provided by by lyrics and the idea of that form of song that i think is kind of at the heart yeah and it also just kind of gets into sort of theories of like what is songwriting because i think of like lithuania's entry of like we are the winners of the eurovision song contest and like that's pretty much the only lyric (laughs) and yeah i think that came in sixth so like it's like lithuania's best entry ever (laughs) so uh but it's like okay is that really a song lyrically like it but it had instrumentation so yep yeah it, i do like that yeah. there's like an entire subset of songs that are at least on some level about winning the eurovision song contest which feels like a which feels sort of like writing an acapella song for the eurovision song contest and that that's an extra level of difficulty that you do not need to attempt mm-hmm yeah, especially because it usually does not go well for the Yeah, like the, the history of like meta songs at the competition is not a good one. Yeah, we will, we will probably be talking about those uh, in an at, upcoming at episode. Point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think that does it for now. Uh, although I will note that we will probably in the show notes have links to both a video history of instrumentation and this awesome website and the conductor is that does a wonderful job of like summing up the history of when these things shifted and why they shifted. And like, I love that the answer to why they shifted is, well, there was a new director and he wanted to shake things up. And the conductor is, was just such a delightful find when researching this episode. Cause like it, it gets into one of the things that I love about Eurovision where it's just like, there are these like niche fan communities within this already kind of niche fan community. And yeah, just reaching this extra level of like, oh no, we just want to focus on the conductors that have participated in the contest and be like, yes, let's do that. Yes. uh, (laughs) yes, There's somebody who's like, I want to write about this and they've done that. And then I love it. Like one of the notes at the bottom of that website is that, oh yeah, there are people who still petition for them to bring back the orchestra. Oh yeah. Of course uh, there is. Yeah. Like every year there's like one group that's like, we want it back. And it's like, oh, I wonder what would happen if they did bring that back, which like, especially with what happened in Portugal, where they're just like, you know what? We're not doing LEDs this year. I could totally see it where like a host is just like, you know, let's bring back the orchestra new challenge for you. And then like Sweden somehow brings in 
like their own orchestra or like whatever. And it's just like, nope, we're doing it our way. Yep. <laughs> so. Hello, we're Sweden. Uh, uh, but yeah, that I think that's going to do it for this episode of the Euro What. Thank you for listening. Uh, the Euro What podcast is hosted by Ben Smith. That's me and Mike McComb. That's me. You can find us on our website at eurowhat.com and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We are on all the socials at eurowhat. If you'd like to contact us by email, we can be reached at esc at whatelseison.tv. We'd love to hear your questions and comments. You can subscribe to the Eurowhat on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. Word of mouth is still the best way to get folks to listen. So please be sure to tell all your friends about the Eurowhat podcast. Leave us some comments in the iTunes store. The more of those we get, the more people discover the show. The more people discover the show. That's how podcasts work, apparently. It's very weird. There's no analytics. Anyways, we'll be back in a couple weeks to try and make some sense of what's new in Eurovision. Take care.